You're listening to She's Got Drive podcast, the podcast that inspires women to be the driver in their own life through the life and stories of black women with drive. And I'm your host, Shirley McAlpine. I'm a business consultant, an executive coach, and a leadership facilitator, working with people and organizations to live their lives by design and not default. Welcome back to She's Got Drive. Welcome back. After nearly four months break, we are back producing the podcast and um, I'm back in the seat of the podcaster. As you may know, my mum passed away. um, It was on the 30th of June after being diagnosed with brain cancer and just four weeks before she passed. So I'm not sure if you can imagine what that's like and some of you must know of course because you've experienced something I'm sure and and I just needed to stop you know I needed to stop for a while I needed to take a break I needed to take things I just couldn't really so I want to dedicate this episode to my mum who shaped who the woman I am today and who was a woman of such grace and beauty And I miss her terribly, uh, you know, um, and my heart is still broken, but each day brings some new healing. You know, so the break, one of the things that the break has done is it had me think about, you know, the program and, um, and what improvements I wanted to you know due to the program so there's some new segments that are coming in the program and I'll kind of talk you through the segments as we go in this episode and they'll just kind of be repeating every every week the segments that I'm really proud of and um I'm really happy about including in the in the in the each episode so I hope you like them as much as myself and Cassandra like them because we like them so I want to start with the first segment the first segment is is called What Drives Me This Week. And this segment is going to be about sharing the things that are guiding me, the things that are keeping me going, the things that are inspiring me, um, the things that are driving me crazy too and what I want to do about them or what I'm doing about them. You know, so the things that's kind of on top for me about when I say what's on top, the things that's right, really prominent for me and uh, so that it can inspire you into action or inspire you just by sharing the story about what's driving me. So I just want to, sh- that'd be one of the first segments that we're going to introduce into the podcast. Now this week, it given that I've been away and I wanted to acknowledge the thing that's been sort of driving me and driving me back towards facing outwards and and being willing to look into the future again after mum and um because you know I had to turn in, inwards so the thing that's been gradually moving me back to work to Instagram to doing the podcast to going out and doing things really has been you know I'm going to point to two things one is the just the support that I have received um Really, the support has been phenomenal. So I want to give a shout out 
to every person who has supported me and continues to support me at this time. That is without a doubt one of the hardest times of my life. You know, it, it's inexplicable what that loss of the woman who bore you, who who knows you the most, really, losing her. Um, so my family, my husband's been phenomenal. My children have been extraordinary. My siblings, my brother and sisters, my my cousins, my my nephews, my aunts, my uncles, my um, friends. You know, both in the UK and in the US. You know, friends from various degrees of friendship, and it's amazing who shows up for you and who supports you um, when you don't know what to do or you don't know how to even face your day. Even the like smallest gestures, the smallest gestures can mean so much um, when you're faced with something like this. And, and also my listeners, my followers on Instagram, your messages have been so wonderful to receive and it's extraordinary because we've never met and um most of you and uh and there you are sending me these wonderful messages and your patience with me we're coming back so thank you so much they have moved me to tears as they do now when I think about the support and the other thing that has supported me that was a kind of like a new development for me and it it's really been music and Dana Joy Morgan, who was one of the earlier uh, guests on She's Got Drive. One of the things that she says in that episode, I think it's episode three or something like that, is she says music is medicine and um, and it has been my medicine. And this particular type of music has been my medicine over the last three months. And that's been gospel music. And And how I came to it is... Really, my friend Ray, shout out to Ray, when mum was ill, sent me a Spotify playlist of gospel songs. I mean, there must have been like, there were like hours and hours and hours of them. And I would play it um, regularly, like all the time. I started playing this, this, um, this playlist and it was just so amazing for me the difference that it made when mum was ill and the difference it made as I looked after her or I played it for her and um, and the difference it made for me when once she passed and it really became my prayer. Now, I don't talk about God a lot on this podcast, um, but it really was when you don't have words yourself, when you cannot find the words and you can find your prayer in, in that. That's what I did. I found my prayer in the music and I found my prayer in the gospel music. And there was one song. And this song is like where I reach to when I don't have, like I really don't have anything left to 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 speak. I can't speak what I need to, to get myself like up and out. Um, this There's this one song that I just play on a loop. And I am so grateful that I contacted Martin Sapp Ministries to say get permission to play this song because it's been and they have gracefully allowed me to play this song on this episode and um 
if you're inspired by this song, I urge you to go and download it. And um, and because it's just so wonderful, I'm going to play an excerpt from it and it, there'll be parts of it during the episode because it really has kept me going. And it's and it's Martin Sapp never could have made it. The words in there really speak to me because in the moments when I really felt like the day wouldn't end, you know, or I would sit there for hours and not know what to do. Like, where could I reach? What could I lean on? What can I stand on in order to take me to the next minute? And, um, or when I returned to work and I was working in New York for three or four days and I came back and I landed back in Chicago and I was just like, I had no energy left. I, I just, I just burst into tears. And um, and I just played that song on a loop to get me home, to get me where I needed to be from the airport to home. I mean, that that really encourages me to take a next step. And it really is like I play the this song and it becomes, as I said, my prayer. So I offer it to you, whether you are a gospel person or not, whether you um, believe in God or not, when you listen to how he sings it and what he speaks to that he speaks about, I just really get the power of the ability to reach and find that something that takes you forward. And then there's a moment when you like when you are how can I say it? There's a moment when you look at yourself and you think God, I've really like traveled a space here and I'm not in the same space that I was three months ago. And I'm not in the same space that I'll be in a year's time. Uh, but I am here. And I look in the mirror and there's these words that he says when he looks in the mirror and he says, I'm stronger and I'm wiser. I'm better, so much better. And I, and I say that often. I'm stronger. I'm wiser, I'm better, so much better. And it, it really, I feel it, I feel it. So music has been my medicine, gospel has been my medicine, gospel has been my prayer. And that has been introduced to me by a good friend, Ray. So thank you, Ray. You have no idea what the gift you've given me. And thank you, Martin Sapp, because you have no idea the gift that you've given me over the last three months. So I give it to you. I urge you to go and download it. I don't get anything for this. This is really, I'm extending this to you as a gift for wherever you are and whatever you're doing to, to listen and see what it gives you, you know? And so, yeah. That's that's my what's driving me this week, and it and it's the thing that no doubt will continue to drive me for a bit. So let's. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sniffing. I'm there's tears everywhere, and uh, it might just just go that way this episode. Uh, let's turn to my guest, who's Dewana Williams, and I'm so pleased that I'm coming back with this woman who truly is like one of a kind. I mean, there's literally like in the area that she works in New York area, there's probably like a couple of people like her. And so 
it was a real privilege to be introduced to her and to spend some time talking to her and um, having this conversation with her about her and her life. And so let me tell you about her. Dewana Williams is the founder and managing principal of Daybar Development Partners. Now, Daybar Development Partners is a experienced real estate development firm and it's focused on developing really distinctive, innovative properties and in the New York area. Dewana Williams has 20 years of experience in real estate industry and prior to find founding Daybar in 2003, Miss Williams worked as a commercial real estate lawyer, spending most of her career at, at the international law firm Sidley Austin from 1994 to 2003. She represented major developers, international governing agent authorities, investment banks, institutional lenders and private equity investors in connection with a wide range of high profile real estate transactions. During this period, those projects involved millions of spatial square feet and over $1 billion in transaction value. I'm so excited to be sharing this um, interview with you. I give you Dewana Williams. Dewana, thank you so much for sitting in the guest chair this week and welcome to She's Got Drive. Thank you, Shirley. It's a pleasure to be here. So happy to share this time with you. Great. I would love for you to share with our listeners um, something about yourself and your work and how you started your um, your own organization and your own company. Like, how did you get to, to be where you are? Oh, wow. That's a loaded question. <laughs> uh, I, can, I guess I'll start with the origins of, of how I got interested in real estate. Mm-hmm. It started in two phases. First, um, as a little girl, actually, um, I think I was about nine years old. My mother uh, was a single parent. She saved her money over the years and wanted to buy our first home. She chose a neighborhood that I thought was not the best neighborhood. And we had our first disagreement um, as mother-daughter. I wanted her to buy another neighborhood. Um, She won, of course. (laughs) It was her money. And From that point on, I started to really be intrigued by the real estate market because what happened over the following years is the community in which she decided to purchase did decline in value, and the one that I was interested in uh, appreciated. And from time to time, we would talk about it, and she actually would encourage me to read the paper, uh, the real estate section, to go to auctions, to look at foreclosures. So I was really fascinated about real estate from a very early age. That's kind of the first start. I then went to college, Smith College, then law school. Um, and following law school, I started my first job and thought that I was going to be working as a corporate lawyer in mergers and acquisitions. There was a recession, and the managing partner asked if I would be interested in moving departments to real estate. I went kicking and screaming. <laughs> and after my first assignment, I remembered, wait, this is something I'm really interested in. I forgot that I actually do like real estate. So that was the second start for me. Oh. Uh, and really from there, I began to think about how I, can, how I could transition from real estate, from being a real estate lawyer to uh, pursuing real estate as my own entrepreneur, entrepreneurial venture. Mm. And that was really the beginning for me. 
Wow, you know, I can't imagine being nine years old, <laughs> 10 years old, 11 years old, being so interested in real estate. It sounds like you were, were you the only one? Like, I can't imagine there's a crew of you, like, getting into that. Like, Yeah, it's really weird. I, I, it was just me. I, I had a friend, a guy friend that I did a lot of science projects with. And I would recruit him. He would recruit me to do science projects with mm -hmm. him. And so I, I would recruit him to go to auctions with me. It was really weird, but um, I really liked it. I, I, yeah, I was into it. I think also because my father um, was an entrepreneur, I, I, I kind of wasn't afraid of business. And I grew up yeah. knowing about starting a business and, and, and independence in business. And it's really interesting that, as you said, that you had forgotten your interest, you know, as so you went through your studying and then you trained as a lawyer and then come back and then, as you said, you were going to go into mergers and acquisitions. Yeah. But I then think to just have this opportunity reignite something. It, that's why it was a little bit of divine intervention. Um, once I completed high school, I went away. I, I, I was raised in, in Atlanta, Georgia. So when I moved to, Massachusetts for college. It was such a big cultural shock as well as an academic challenge. So I really submersed myself in that experience. Along the way, I majored in economics and government and started to think about what I could do as a career. And many people were interested in being lawyers and doctors, typical things you think about, engineers. Mm -hmm. And so I was going along with the flow, with the crowd. And slowly, I, I think I just simply forgot about the things that really moved me personally. Mm -hmm. um, so over the years, you know, after finishing law school, I was probably eight years out from um, high school when I had been interested in real estate. I just slowly uh, stopped pursuing it, started pursuing other things. Right, right. So then you get into being, um, let's spend some time, the time when you're a lawyer in, um, a property lawyer, but it's commercial property rather than is correct. Yeah. So, what was that experience like? And then, and then, why why move from that to starting up your own? Entity? Sure. Well, I worked for um, two law firms, major law firms, and and that in itself was a privilege. Uh, typically, um, the 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 most prized jobs are with the large law firms. Mm -hmm. And I was blessed to be able to work with two large firms. One was Paul Hastings. Formerly it was Battle Fowler, which is the firm that hired me, but they were acquired by Paul Hastings. Mm -hmm. And then I moved on to another um, large law firm called Sidley Austin. That happens to be the same firm that the Obamas worked for. They were ahead of me though. I, I didn't know them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but I worked for Sidley Austin in New York City uh, on commercial transactions, uh, commercial uh, real estate deals. We represented all the major real estate developers like related companies, which is a known real estate entity. Um, even the Trump organization was a client. Um, and I can go on and on. A lot of the really well-known property developers mm -hmm. were our clients, as well as investment banks um, and lending institutions. And in working on those deals, I really would look and think, wow, I live in Brooklyn. I live in a at the time, a neighborhood called Fort Greene, Clinton Hill, which was not so popular. It's very popular today as a global right. brand, but it was not a popular neighborhood at that time. Uh, this was the late 90s, early 2000s. And I started to think about, since I was active already in the um, community organization, how I could help to improve some of the retail along the streetscape mm -hmm. and how I could be helpful in 
revitalizing some of the dilapidated buildings in the community. So I started to look more closely at, hmm, how can I reproduce on a microscopic scale what I'm doing really on a macro, macro scale? Right. And uh, I just started to put a plan in place. And my first uh, endeavor was to buy a brownstone, very simply, in Brooklyn. And I purchased it, renovated it, and decided to live there. And I really loved it. And of course, as I said, I started to remember, I have a real interest in this. And I, I was already remembering as mm -hmm. a lawyer, but even in developing, I started thinking, that, oh, yeah, I really like this. And once I completed that transaction, I then purchased another building. And that led to another building in, in my community. And I started to see the improvement in the streetscape. I saw the difference in um, people, when they walk down the street, seeing new retail coming in, I really liked just the social impact right. um, that that was happening. So in 2003, I really faced a decision about whether or not to pursue partnership. I was a ninth year associate, and it's a pretty rigorous endeavor uh, if you work for a firm that has offices around the world, at least with that firm, to, to pursue partnership. You have to spend time in different countries and with partners in different offices to uh, rally support so that they'll vote for you when the partnership vote comes up. So that I had to choose between that route, and I was already pretty burned out being mm -hmm. a ninth-year lawyer versus leaving and betting on myself. So I decided in 2003 to not make a push for partnership but to start my own firm since I had a few properties already under my belt, and I started Debar Development Partners in 2003. Wow. So then what is it that – so? What is it that you rely on to make that decision? Like, what are you, what are you using to make oh, that yeah. life? It's a life. It's a, it's a fork in the road decision, isn't it? Though? It really is. You know, you know, so what I've said so far sounds really positive and la la la. <laughs> um, and so you, you just asked a really poignant and, and valuable question. What drove me to that decision really was personal crisis. Um, at the time, I was going through a divorce mm -hmm. uh, in 2003 as well. And I, you know, really started to think about, hey, what are you, what is your life going to be? What do you really, uh, what do you really want your life, your legacy to be? Right. And I was, as I said, feeling really burned out too from the practice of law. It was a great profession. Um, it's a great place to be. But when you're working 15 hours a day for years and years on end, it really, really, um, really is gut wrenching. Mm -hmm. So between my professional um, anxiety, as well as my personal anxiety, in my personal life, I decided that I was at a fork in the road and I really had to choose what I had to really be clear about my purpose and my calling and choose the road that was going to lead to the legacy that I wanted to leave behind. Right. So that personal crisis led me to my higher calling. Mm. And how would you define your higher calling? That's a great question. I, I think my higher calling, I've never really said it aloud, but I think my higher calling is to provide an example to others, to shelter them, to feed them, to house them, mm -hmm. um, and to ensure that those that are less fortunate than myself, or even those who are as fortunate, even more fortunate, um, have a place that they can call home. Mm. I believe that is my, my purpose, to provide a home. Oh, that's to not to be underestimated at 
or right. You, you're so right. I, you know, so over the years, I've, I've been able to provide that home to a home to so many people and to get to know the children, to know the parents, to know the relatives, to see them right. celebrate in those places has been just really, really rewarding. And each time that I experience that, that reward that other people experience, um, I know that it is not to be underestimated. Right. Right. I mean, the, when we, um, when people find uh, a home, they find they create foundation they for themselves and their life, and then from that place, you know, you know, people can thrive when they've got strong foundations. You know, so I think Absolutely. people underestimate the power that that gives to people when they when they've got a space that's theirs, and when they've got when they're creating this foundation for them and their family and the difference that that makes. So it's huge. It's huge. It's huge. And really from the standpoint of um, determining success factors in the life of a child, mm -hmm. circum circumstances of, of birth are really uh, predictive. So if you look at the circumstances surrounding a child's parenting, um, their home life, um, their home surroundings, you mm -hmm. can actually predict a lot about their outcome, their life outcome. So part of that is the home. Uh, if you're homeless versus if you're in a home that where there's strife or a home right. that's falling apart or one right. that's poisoned with lead, all those factors really do impact the out, the life outcome right. for a child. Right. So then help us understand how it works in terms of your, um, the commercial side of property development and then the social the social enterprise side or the social what social development if you like sure like how sure. does that how do they marry the two because yeah how does it work yeah you're you're asking really good questions today <laughs> <laughs> so you they they don't they're not not they 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 do not necessarily marry well you have, you have to make an effort to marry commercial development with development that has a positive social impact. Mm -hmm. um, so when I first started developing, I developed properties that were um, commercially viable uh, and what we call, the lingo that we use is market rate. So mm -hmm. I, I developed properties that were market rate, typically luxury housing, because that's what I knew. That's where I, the industry that I came from, watching other developers develop luxury housing. Right. And once I accomplished a few developments that were market rate housing, um, I started to think though, this is nice, selling, basically I was selling condominiums, building buildings, selling condominiums. Mm. I thought, this is great, but I feel like there's more. Uh, I want to be able to impact, have an impact in the lives of people that are strivers, people that are buying their first home, or people who are what we call workforce developers, people that are teachers and firemen and police officers. Mm -hmm. How do I help them um, get a leg up in terms of their housing. And I knew that typically that happens with some assistance from the government, but I had never done anything like affordable housing. Mm. So I took a sabbatical during the recession and went to, uh, I applied to and was accepted and attended the, the Kennedy School. Um, and I got a master's in public policy. That enabled me to spend uh, 18 months studying private partner public-private partnerships, the three Ps, as they're called, right. public-private partnerships around the world. How have they happened successfully? 
what's the latest and greatest techniques in marrying public and private partnerships. Mm -hmm. And I was able to graduate, come back to New York and engage more fully with um, the city of New York and, uh, and, and the state with government entities on new partnerships to provide developments that was going to help this population that I, that I mentioned, this affordable housing population. Right. And uh, I'm, I'm blessed to say that I was able to do so successfully. And we now have in the pipeline um, four developments, which are public-private partnerships with either the city or state of New York. Um, our biggest one is a project we're working on um, in Brooklyn, New York, on Atlantic Avenue. We're developing a block-through site that is a mixed-use development. It will contain 236 apartments, which will be rented to a range of um, people with incomes that are considered affordable. Mm -hmm. We'll we'll provide um, a 15,000-square-foot grocery store, which would be a major, uh, well-known, established grocer. I can't say right now we're in negotiations. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we're providing some retail space. Um, one is for um, a company called Oco Farms, we're working with them to grow an urban garden. Wow. And yeah, it, that's one oh of my the, the highlights. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. I'm that, so excited about that. Sorry, keep going. Cause like, no, that's okay. New York that's and okay. green spaces, much less an urban garden. I don't know. Yeah. It's, yes. We so. will, it's both, it's actually hydroponics and aquaponics. So we'll be growing fresh greens of all types of varieties as well as fresh fish through the aquaponics what? and yeah we'll provide educational workshops to tenants and people in the community about how to grow organics sidebar i i recently met um a woman who was raising her son and he was at one of our workshops because we're doing things now um to promote the garden and it was his first time seeing a worm he had never seen a worm before what? and yeah. And I started talking to some of the people there and realized, and well, they, they informed me that, you know, many of their kids have never seen worms. They don't know how food grows. They're not aware of what a seed is. So it, it, it's really unbelievable. But when you grow up in an urban, urban environment, particularly when your parents are also from that same environment, right. you don't know how to um, sustain yourself organically. So right. I think it will be very valuable to the community. Wow. Uh, yeah. That's and then there's some so other exciting. retailers too. Yeah, one another one of the retail um, tenants will be Neighborhood Housing Services. They'll provide educational workshops on financial literacy, how to buy a home, um, and so yeah. So that that's a little bit about that development. So we're doing other projects that are uh, similar in nature. Um, so that's how we're marrying to answer your question: commercial development with social impact investing. This is amazing. Green spaces are so critical mm -hmm. to our lives and how we um, live our lives and our vibrancy, our well-being and mm -hmm. to, and you said food. Our, our, Absolutely. Right. So all of those things and bringing it into one space is, is, is going to be huge in, at, at the community mm -hmm. level. Yeah. You know, you're, you, one thing that I, I discovered from the Kennedy school and in, and in my research about what's best in terms of public private, partnerships for affordable housing is that previously a connection had not been made between the well-being of the tenant and the community with things like green space, with mm -hmm. things like organic food. Mm -hmm. So tenants were, as you look at public housing, you can see tenants were not offered green space in their own homes, like private terraces, for example, right. or rooftop 
gardening. Those things right. were not offered. But if you step back and, and take a balcony view, just look at it holistically, when someone has a private terrace, their own outdoor space, or a rooftop garden or organic food, right. they actually feel better about themselves right. and they treat other people well. And it then has a positive, overall positive impact on the community. So I think that we're now turning those that, that logic inside out and seeing that the very things that were not offered um, and that we thought previously were for luxury housing are really more needed in places that are affordable so that people can overcome their circumstances. Exactly, exactly. I mean, there's been research that's been done when we looked in the in kind of well-being medita meditation space of research, where actually just looking at a picture of trees has a, actually alters your state. So, yes, it does. So just looking at a picture, much less looking at a real plant or actually having your hands in soil can have, and, and the people are using it as um, forms of therapy. And yes. so to the, that's the degree that, yes. that green spaces and live, live plants yes. um, actually has on us. And so, and that's why we can see where people are in the um, parts of the city where people are, where we have more affluent housing, there's always something green. Exactly, exactly. No. So, yeah, if you're living in a high-stress environment, it is needed even more so. Right. Yes. Right. So I'm excited about about what you're doing. Now, you're like a shit hot as what's coming <laughs> to my mind. I'm trying to say, I'm just going to put ex expletive in, uh, in my ahead. thing. Go you're ahead. a shit hot okay. property developer. I mean, come on, <laughs> seriously. And so what is it like when you... Um, are showing up in the in the various chambers of commerce and all these other spaces, and then you rock up with your. <laughs> what's that like? Because it's not. I imagine it's not many of you, as we've talked about. You know, and you've your influencing change in that regard, but you and your and, and your colleagues. Yeah, right. you know. I think so. There are two. Is I can say a couple of things about it. Uh, you're right. Um, <clears throat> At first, people would see me, this black woman, and there aren't any other. There, there's one other black woman who, who I know who is developing. Um, um, but so they, they, but typically they're not used to seeing a black woman. So they used to look at me, you know, with like they had three heads, or like I had three heads. Right. <laughs> but 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 beyond that, um, I I really think that when you are walking in purpose, it doesn't really phase you as much as it would if you were in a place that you did not know if you belonged. Right. Because I know I'm walking in purpose, I, I know this is where I belong. I think that comes across when I meet people and interact with them. In addition, I'm prepared. Um, I received very good training as a corporate real estate lawyer. I was at the top of my game in that profession. So when I show up in purpose and prepared and talk and have a conversation with people, I think they are instantly at ease. Um, not that I need to put them at ease, right. but um, I tend to have pretty positive interactions with other people in the profession. And over the years, um, even though I'm, in terms of black female, probably the only one um, that a lot of people interact with, they're used to seeing me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but it's not about me, it's about those coming behind me. And I'm pretty vocal, as I mentioned, as a part of the New York Real Estate Chamber as well, 
and they know, uh, people in my industry, my colleagues know that I'm an advocate for more inclusion for people of color, not just women, but mm -hmm. people in general of color. They know that that's my agenda and um, I wear it on my sleeve, uh, but I'm also prepared and, and they seem to accept it. But yes, I, I am one of the only few in the room. Yes, that, that part is true. I'm the one to kind of talk more broadly around success. How would you define success? Of course, everyone defines success differently. It means something different to everyone, so it's really relative. Mm -hmm. um, some people relate it to a feeling. Some people relate it to money. Um, for me, success is a spiritual um, component. Mm -hmm. It's really about knowing that my heart, mind, and soul are aligned with who I am and who I'm supposed to be. For me, I have felt successful always. Um, I've had some really difficult times and lots of down times. I've even, you know, through the recession, that was a very difficult period for me. Um, and it took some time to come out of that um, professionally, that downturn. But I've always felt successful because I think success in, in my heart, soul, mind, and body is about walking in one's purpose, mm -hmm. understanding your identity, um, and not necessarily just the racial construct, but um, your source. And for mm -hmm. me, that is God. Understanding that is my identity and knowing that I am pleasing my God and doing what I was called to this earth to do is my definition of success. Right. So I think you have so many different lives to live and, and, you know, different stages in life. And as long as you are being the best that you can be at each stage, then you are successful. Hmm. So it's an inner way of being. And then the yeah. outer things um, show up inside of that, really. It's not, it's not from the outwards in, it's from the inward It's not. Out. Absolutely. It, it is not, for many people, I know that it is external. For me, it is not, success is not external. It is, again, just ensuring that I am showing up as my highest self, mm -hmm. um, doing my best, and that my mind, my heart, and my soul, and my body are aligned so that I'm fulfilling the purpose that I'm called here for. Right. And it sounds like it's also like being in an alignment, there's an alignment piece isn't there like you're in alignment with when you said what you're here to do you're in alignment with your higher self and so even if they're on the outside things are going well with the recession for example but are you still in alignment do you still still stay true to self irrespective of what's showing up in your life exactly even when let's say uh the business was faltering during the recession which was an extremely difficult time for me I still felt successful because I was confident that I was serving my, that I was, that, that sheltering people, being a developer is my calling in life. And so I am on my correct path. Right. My mind and my spirit were aligned in knowing that that is where I'm supposed to be. And in everything there's failure and everything there's crisis, but it does not mean that you're not successful. Mm -hmm. At the same time, in addition to or outside of those negative um, experiences, when I have achieved um, things that are external to myself, accomplishing winning RFPs or making money, um, I feel successful then as well because right. they are also a part of the 
formula of completing my task of being a developer. So the good and the bad are are are, are part of the success, right. and, and I recognize it each each time it happens. Right. So if we look at that, I'm curious about what's your what's been your biggest challenge, and then what's been your biggest accomplishment. Oh, biggest challenge, biggest accomplishment. I, well, professionally. Well, in life, I mean, you could keep it professionally or you can keep I'll, it more broadly if you want I'll to. keep it professional. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, then just moving beyond the spirit part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, professionally, I think the biggest challenge for me was surviving the, the, the recession. Mm-hmm. So we started in 2003. Uh, we developed... I, let's see, probably four new construction projects between 2003 and 2008, nine. Mm-hmm. They, they all went well. And then the last project started to falter because the economy was in a downturn. Right. And I had not made a plan for the downturn. And I had to figure it out on my feet how to continue to walk along this path that I know I'm supposed to be on with such a tremendous downturn in the economy and with the frozen credit market. I was blessed enough, um, as I said before, and this this actually ties into the success formula, Mm -hmm. I was blessed enough to have had a substantial savings. Um, As I mentioned, I was able to purchase properties when I was practicing law before I started the firm and um, I was a lot of those and also had sold condominiums and those condominiums um, provided a lot of proceeds. At the time that all of this happened, I didn't know that a downturn was going to happen eventually. But speaking of the definition of success, I was not someone who was moved externally by these successes. Internally, Mm. I was happy because my heart and my spirit, my soul was aligned with my purpose. So I didn't go out and spend a lot of money because Mm. it wasn't, that was not my definition of success. Um, And as you know, God would have it, I was going to need that money later on. And I was blessed enough to have the capital necessary to survive over the next three years while the markets were frozen. And I spent that time, as I mentioned, I took a sabbatical. I went to Harvard, to the mm-hmm. Kennedy School. I saw it as an opportunity to pivot to uh, what I was interested in, which was public-private partnerships, and then to come back and start a new pipeline of developments that were geared towards something with more social impact. So mm-hmm. that was my biggest challenge. And I know that's the, like the worst thing to do in an interview, to make your biggest challenge sound, your worst quality sound like your best. But <laughs> it turned out to be... <laughs> it did turn out to be the challenge did turn out to be something that was for my good in the end but it was yes. a long three to four year process to turn out to be for my good right well it well you know I actually think you know our biggest the our biggest breakdowns whatever that is can lead to our to huge break, breakthroughs for us in our life and that they yeah it's in the places of uncertainty that we have our biggest growth because you yeah. have to get creative and you have to think, how am I going to, what does this mean for me? How am I going to navigate this? Where does this take me? Yes. It, you, you know, you are drawing on things that you, uh, that are latent, that are there. Yeah. But yes. 
we don't always notice that it's there because we're, you know, walking in life and things are working. <laughs> uh, yes, absolutely. So this is 2018. I started the business in 2003. It's taken me 15 years to become an overnight success. I didn't know <laughs> it was going to take this long. Right. If anyone had told me, I don't know that I would have started on my own. I had I had a pretty cushy job, so right. it takes it takes a long time. And I also now am recognizing as I'm getting older and looking around at other developers who are successful according to you know society standards. Um, this is a generational business, uh, and I and I see why because we're now developing a new pipeline of of, of buildings um, and. As I said, it's taken 15 years to get to this place with, with this new pipeline that I think will really um, bring a lot of more credibility to our firm. But we'll be starting construction on most of them next year, 2019, and we'll be working through them over the next 10 years. I'll be much older then. Yes. And to do the next tranche, it'll be another 10 to 20 years. So I see why when people talk about real estate development firms, how they, they announce this person is fourth generation or fifth generation. It really is a generational business. And if you're interested, I think thinking about it in, in, as a long-term yes. business is, is what you have to do as well. I've got one, um, my, one question that I have to, as we kind of move to close in. Um, sure. Is if you had to speak to the Dewana, the nine-year-old, <laughs> who was turning up at auctions and getting her interest in there around the property you know what would you have advised what would you, advice would you give her given who you are today wow you know my advice to nine-year-old Duana is Girl, it is going to be okay. Just keep doing what you're doing. You are going to get there. That's really it. Yeah. Just trust and know. Trust and know. I yeah. that's I appreciate our conversation so much. You know, you are doing there's so much the impact that you're having on the community, the impact you're going to have on the on the community in Atlantic Avenue um, mm-hmm. and beyond, you know, whatever other projects you're working on, but also the impact that you're having as a as a black woman doing this work, which is like, you you know, it's huge. It's oh, huge wow. <laughs> because it's so rare. I mean, when we imagine a property developer, it, it is, you're not the image that comes to mind. Right, but you right. give permission for other people to, other women to go, oh, hold on, what, oh, <laughs> I could be a property developer, you know what I mean? Like, and, and, the diff- <laughs> and really stepping into that space. And so I appreciate all that you're doing in, in doing oh, that. Sure. And thank you for sharing it with us today. Well, Shirley, thank you so much for having me and for those kind words and kind sentiments. I, I really appreciate it. So that was great, wasn't it? Listening to Dewana. Yay! Loved her so much. Thank you, Dewana, again. So another segment that I want to introduce in this podcast is called Courageous Moments. And um, as you can see, it's come out of my recent experience um 
So courageous moments that, you know, the word courage is derived from the French word, la coeur, the heart. And what that says for me is that it speaks to the moments of courage being actions that are ultimately led from our heart, where we take on a brave action that's in service of us or in service of another. And we're confronting something, we're going past something, we're, f- we're forwarding something, we're, we're facing something and going beyond it and, or meeting it. And they, those are moments in time where we make a choice about who we're going to be. And that courageous is being, is, we call it being courageous or being brave. And the being comes before action. So I, and why am I introducing this segment is I want to have a part where this, these stories inspire you to be courageous because courage, courage is contagious, actually. You know, when we see other people being courageous, you know, it can inspire us to be courageous in our own life. And so um, this week I'm going to share, a, I'm going to share something for me. But as we move forward, you know, I'll be inviting my guests to share a moment that's courageous. So that will be in here and um, and maybe even some listeners as well to share courageous moments that I might feature in the podcast. So it leaves you inspired into action because because bravery is a form of being courage is a form of being and if you can be those things I know I see how when people are taking on the transformation of their own life and what they want creating their life that they want and designing the life they want there are moments of of courage that's required in order to step forward um so this week of as of course is in tribute to my mum so I want to share um a courageous moment story in relating to my mum, you know, you know, I watched my mum being so brave and um, being so courageous. And it struck me that she's actually been that many times. She's demonstrated that bravery, that courage many times in her life. You know, she came to London in the 1960s to create a new life for herself with a small amount of money in a suitcase with some things, you know. She sacrificed a lot for us and I'm, I am because of her beauty, her grace, her courage. And I still many times in our life watching her take courageous actions. And then the final action, of course, um, is how brave she was in dealing with the diagnosis that she had of brain cancer and how she navigated that and all that entailed. You know, she until the 30th of June, you know. Her, the way that she accepted in a peaceful way what was, the way that she showed love, patience, kindness, connection, right to the end, the way that she faced her illness with dignity and with grace and, um, and really, and trust, and so she was a real demonstration for me of what the being is that accompanies courage, what the being is that accompanies bravery. And 
it is I think about that often and that act of witnessing her courage and her bravery requires me to be brave to step forward to live the dream life that she has gifted to me so it really reminds me losing mum really reminds me of the preciousness of life and um so when I think I can't do something like the moments I think I'm not done I think I'm going to come back and do the podcast I can't and so of course you can of course you can when I think about her now I'm not the same person that I was before the 30th of June I'm not sure how I've changed but I do know I've changed I don't know what it's gonna how it's gonna show up where I'm gonna end up with this experience but what I can say it's going to take me being brave in moments me going beyond myself me me leading from my heart space and knowing that that step the next step is required either for me or the behalf of others so this is my story my courageous moment is my mum's courageous moments really and I want to say mum I love you and I miss you and thank you for your bravery thank you for your courage that you showed all of us and um and the gift that that is to us all and now we're going to move on to shirley i have a question which is a new segment ask me a question about things that you could do to take action things that you can do to create and design your life um things that you what you how you how do you make things happen those kind of questions because I want to bring all the kind of experience that I've got as a coach, as a facilitator, working with leaders uh, in different parts of the world um, to that question. And so you can hit me up in my DMs or you can go to my website, Shirley McAlpine, my DMs on Instagram, that is. Or you can go to my website, ShirleyMcAlpine.com as well. And you can send me your questions there and I will choose a listener's question and address the question in the episode and I'm also planning to do some more solo episodes and so it will also be featured in my solo episodes so head over to my Instagram and my website to get in contact with me and let me know what questions you have about how to design and cause your life never Okay, well, that's it. You know, that's the end of the first episode as I return to um, the return of She's Got Drives. I hope that you've been inspired to shift gears in your own life. You can really hear there's a number of lessons that I've learned over the last three months. You can hear the lessons that Dewana speaks about as well, you know, and how she defines success as an internal journey. Um and an internal acknowledgement, so much wise, wise words, so many wise words that were spoken by Dewana. Thank you for that. I know that, you know, I want, you know that I love to hear from you, you know that I value hearing from you. So please be in touch with me. Let me know how you, um, what you got from this episode. Let me know about these new segments. What do you think about them? Ask me questions about you and your life and see what I can bring to the episode and see how I can be of service to you 
I'm curious to hear what you've got and what and what you're taking on as you go forth from each episode. You can also go over to my Facebook page, the, the community page, and um, leave comments there as well. I want to acknowledge Martin Sapp again for the generosity of letting me play this song that's been so special to me and so powerful. I put the link in the show notes so that you can find it on it's on iTunes or um, you can download it and thank you to my um, producer Cassandra who or Talina who produces She's Got Drive and I'm glad that we're back in partnership again and music by Blonde Full Circle thank you so much for listening Thank you so much for being an, an, an avid listener. You know, subscribe on iTunes and please rate and review the show. Let's keep growing the show. I'm back on now. It'll be with you every week. So let's get the show on the road. Let's get it on the road. So thank you so much. Until next time, go well and stay well. <laughs>